0: Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today on the show, we're going to have young adult author Caroline George. Her and I have known each other for a couple of years now, and I thought, what a great time to have her on, because her latest book, Dearest Josephine, just came out, and uh, I read it over the last week, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's young adult fiction. I would recommend it if you you know some teenage girls in your life. I I don't. No, many teenage girls of my life, but uh, I still enjoyed it nonetheless. In this conversation, we talk about a number of different things: her writing, the Regency period in England's history. We had a lot to talk about. It was a lot of fun. Why don't I read her author bio on a, on the book jacket of her hardcover copy here? It's not too often that we we are able to do this, right? Caroline George is a multi award winning author of young adult speculative fiction. She graduated from Belmont University with a degree in publishing and public relations and now travels the country speaking at conferences and writing full-time. A Georgia native, Caroline aspires one day to host the Great British Baking Show and delights in being best known for writing the phrase, coffee first, save the world later. You can follow her on Instagram at author Caroline George. Let's begin. All right. So today I am joined by young adult author Caroline George. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: And you're coming all the way from Georgia, right?
1: I am. Uh, I live about an hour and a half north of Atlanta, so I'm in the country, which has been awesome during this plague season. I've still been able to go out and walk, uh, and it's a really great writing sanctuary, I would say.
0: (laughs) I feel like it's a good time for writers right now.
1: I think writers are thriving, uh, at least. Especially since I've been, I'm more of an extrovert, which is very different from a lot of my writer friends who are a hardcore introvert. But knowing that I really couldn't do anything anyway has kind of helped with the FOMO. So it's allowed me to focus a little bit better. Yeah. But I think writers as a whole are thriving. I think publishing's still doing well, despite some of the hiccups we might've had. I think publishing uh, had hit its stride. And now we have so many more virtual opportunities for author events that people are going to. So I think there's a lot of hope in publishing right now even with covid and all the the world's mess.
0: Yeah. So this is this is now your so we have we're talking today about your latest book that came out Dearest Josephine. And uh I got to say I really like
1: the artwork on here. Yeah, the artist, Connie, did a phenomenal job. I was able to connect with her a few weeks ago. Uh, She also has done uh, Jeff Sittner's books as well, which I think is fun because Jeff's a phenomenal author, but uh, I I think finding or finding the right angle to go with the cover art was a challenge because the book blurs timelines a little bit. It has contemporary elements, historical elements. So finding the right cover direction, you know, that didn't look too historical, but didn't look. Uh, to contemporary, I think it was tricky, but Connie did a phenomenal job with it.
0: Yeah, I really like the, the like matted look to it.
1: I think and it's it, really it, pretty. It looks good on yeah. shelves and it photographs well. So yeah. I'm really grateful the team did a The design team did a phenomenal job.
0: And then also the interior design. I really like how when you start with the chapters, uh, you got that, that flower there and the fonts are good. I, I'm someone who like really appreciates that stuff. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's what I look for in books. Uh, it's a b- beautifully designed book. I mean, it makes you want to buy it. There's also a map, which was always one of my dreams as a kid. When I went to bookstores, I wanted a book with a map. That's what I wanted as an author. I saw and so that. Actually, I so didn't that- see,
0: after I read the book, um, so I read it over the past few days here, and I didn't realize you had a map until I finished the book. And then I went back. But it's it's similar to yeah. how I imagined it, so that's a good thing.
1: Let's that's great it was fun because I got to draw uh, like create like a little mock-up of the estate and then send it to a designer so I kind of got to draw the estate before I sent it which was so fun uh, to be able to have a hand in crafting the map but that was one of those bucket list moments I was able to check off and I think the next book is, uh, that's coming out in November is, will also have a map. So just gonna keep it going, keep, have a map. Yeah, <laughs> keep that
0: going. Well, there, there's so many things I, I wanna ask you about this book. Yeah. Um, so this is the latest one, Dearest Josephine. And admittedly, I don't read a lot of, well, one like young adult books or books written by female authors. Um, I, It's just, it's a fact yeah. that, that I've realized, but I have read, uh, it's yours, Josephine by you, and also uh, your your other one, the Vestige.
1: Thanks, Rich.
0: <laughs> and uh, getting a little plug there. I so and you have what two, three other books?
1: I have two other ones that were that I self published in high school. So this makes four for me now. <laughs>
0: it's a good number, and it, it keeps growing. <laughs> yeah. um, so one thing you went from writing a book that, that took place in like an apocalyptic setting to now in the Regency period of England. How did you come about that? How did you decide that?
1: It was kind of a, it's kind of a long story. When I finished college, I knew I wanted to pursue writing. I had some other career stuff fall through. And so I had a, a, a gap of time where I knew that if I really wanted to see some doors open in my author career, like, then was like now was the time. Uh, So I just started writing. I wrote a, a novel that was kind of dystopian fantasy kind of feel, finished it, started writing some other books, just started sending them to my agent. My agent started pitching them. I think at one point we had about eight to 10 books that were out on submission. And I figured it was like playing, it was like playing a game of chess. It was all about being strategic. At that point, I had been in publishing for a while. I knew the industry I knew how strategic one had to be when really wanting to be successful. And so be, I, I, yes, go ahead.
0: Elaborate on that. What do you mean yeah. by that? Like strategic?
1: Yeah, well, I guess the best way to uh, describe it, um, maybe from a writing perspective, what as a writer, what we love to write may not be what we're best at writing or what we love to write may not may not be what the market is really looking for. For example, you know, I an author might Write a Southern Gothic novel and love it, but if the market—if that's not really what's selling, if that's not what publishers are acquiring, the book might not go anywhere. And so it, be, it would be best to shelve that project until the market comes back around when that's selling again. So I was looking at what was what was selling in the market. You know, what was what films, and TV shows were going to be coming out in the next few years, uh, what, and then trying to predict it, almost like predicting the stock market. You know, trying to figure yeah. out which direction the industry was going to go. So I, I wrote a bunch of different projects. I, uh, my agent was pitching them. Thomas Nelson Harper Collins was interested in a book that was kind of a YA action comedy, which is very different from anything I've ever written. It was very punchy and had a smart wit about it and just super different from when I had tried before that went to pub board, had a phone call with them. And they asked me, long-term, what, what did I want to write? And I said, I wanted to write something a little bit more serious, something that had a little bit more of a literary flavor. So they had me send every, all the, all of my ideas. I think I pitched probably 13 or 15 ideas wow. to them. Dearest Josephine at the time was a adult romance idea. So it wasn't YA, but I took the okay. concept, I turned it into a YA book and pitched it. And that's the one they went for. So was it my original plan to write a Regency YA romance with a contemporary element? Definitely not, but I'm really excited that that's the project that they went with because I think that even though it wasn't my original genre, I think it um, it, it was able to really show voice uh, and I think it was ch- able to challenge me in new ways. I told someone the other day that there are two different types of books. There are books we write for ourselves and books we write for others. And I think the books that I had previously published were written for me, but I think Dear Shows is the first time that I'd actually written for other people uh, because the story, even though I love the story, it wasn't a, just a personal story. So mm-hmm. when I sat down to write, I was writing for the sake of craft and for the sake of loving storytelling and not just the story I was writing. Yeah. And so I think Dear Josephine is the book that really made me an author um, and sh- and proved to myself that no matter what story, uh, I was asked to write that I could write it and still love the process, and so uh, that's how I kind of got into the Regency realm.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned young adult, like what?
1: Yeah.
0: So you're writing for young adult audience to yeah. teenage girls, I imagine. <laughs> so it's it's really interesting reading reading a book because as I'm reading it, I'm like, I'm definitely not her demographic, not, and this not is
1: the target audience. <laughs> this is very
0: interesting, though. And I'm getting inside the heads of like, um, you know, relationships, and then like yeah. trying to think about like, oh, what are young women women experiencing and going through, yeah. and dreams and hopes, and 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 yeah. how is how is Caroline uh, tying this all together? is really interesting to me. Um, yeah,
1: and that's what I think that's what's really fun with, with writing YA. I mean, this book it's a very girly book, uh, but I, I my demographic was really was women of all ages. And that's one thing I love about YA. I was asked in an interview last week by someone about uh, whether I thought YA was a real genre, which kind of threw me for a loop at at first because I was like, who's ever thought that YA wasn't a real genre? But I think what they meant was in in the realm of seriousness of, you know, is it really serious fiction? And one thing I love about YA is the fact that it's universal Mm -hmm. because everyone knows what it's been like to be a teenager. I meet women at conferences ranging from 16 to 66 and a lot of them that I've realized deal with similar insecurities um, are still trying to find their place in the world and so seeing realizing that is one of the reasons why I love YA is because I'm speaking into not just insecurity but into that desire to find our place in the world and that's really what YA at its core as a genre is all about it's about young people finding where they belong you know that coming of age story I mean, we are always in a coming of age story. We're all we're all growing, and I'm, and I think that YA really captures that. But Dearest Josephine is definitely a girly romantic book. It kind of came about playing off of the fantasies of romance that I had seen on social media, like in the bookstagram community. I, I had seen all these girls post about boys and books are better, you know, things like that. And I started thinking about that and realizing how. So much of our ideas of romanticism comes from what we read in literature. So I really wanted Dear Josephine to speak into that and uh, kind of bring it back to reality of, of there, our stories are just as beautiful as the ones we read. So it kind of has a little cliche message, but I think that it's a timeless truth that speaks to women of all ages.
0: Yeah, I had I had a lot of fun reading it, especially <laughs> it was just, you know, it dealt with a lot of, you know, some serious issues and, and mm. And in trials that people go through yeah. a, as real people, and I like how you that's not, it's not an easy thing to tie all these different things together. So, yeah, um, ex- explain the, the plot real quick, yeah, because you, so, you tie together like three different time realms, I and it's do. interesting,
1: <laughs> it's all over the place. But the story at its core is about a girl who when her father dies, she discovers he had previously owned an old fixed rupper manor in Northern England. She goes to the manor and there she finds 200 year old love letters addressed to her. And she also finds a novel uh, written 200 years ago in which it seems that she's the main character. So it flips between her PO, her emails to her former best friend, Faith, Uh, the letters written by a Regency gentleman who is processing the death of his father and then the novel written about the two of them together. So it really explores grief healing and how words bring people together. I'll admit I did not realize how much grief is such a focal point of the book until after I didn't realize that until after the book was published uh, which I think is so interesting. I always saw it as a love letter to the written word when really it's a love letter to uh, grief and how grief isn't a textbook process and how um, we rely on other things or we look for healing in different things in our lives and where healing can really come from. So I think that's interesting that that really wasn't the focal point of the book originally, but that's kind of what the story ended up being about.
0: Yeah, I definitely see that. I, I went through, throughout the book, I was highlighting different things that, that struck me or that I found interesting and a number of them are about healing and, and, and grief, mourning. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. So you're writing historical fiction in this. Yeah. What, what does the research process look like? Tell me, tell me about yeah. that.
1: That was really interesting. I'm, I, I uh, Googled a bunch of weird things. Like, for example, did Regency men wear underwear and a real, they really didn't. So that's a fun fact, but researched a ton of fashion. My mom is a history teacher. So growing up, I was very much learning all things history. I was in competitive history fairs. So that's a nerdy little thing. I would uh, spend a whole year, school year, working on my project. I did candles. I had costumes. I'd have to give a speech. I mean, this is second, third, fourth grade. I'd have to give a huge speech, uh, visited a lot of historical sites. So history has always been a big point of my life. I love Jane Austen, love any period film, TV show. So transitioning from writing sci-fi dystopian into mm-hmm. writing something Regency wasn't too off base, I would say. I mean, it was still something I was familiar with, but with research, I asked, it, it really consisted of asking a lot of history friends, like friends who are okay. um, history majors and things like that. What is, G- explain G- G- the me. Regency period. Okay, so the Regency period, was uh, kind of a return to romanticism. We're looking at like the, the 18, right around, right before the 1820s. This was, the I think 2020, 2021 was a kind of the cutoff. But you see, it's that Georgian period where um, you see a lot of that classical style start to infiltrate, infiltrate culture. Uh, a lot of that just return to the arts, you know, that yeah. Grecian Roman style. Um, if you were a high you were upper class you know you would spend more of your time you know studying the arts uh, gardens would kind of resemble greek roman it was the idea of that renaissance that enlightenment so okay uh yeah so that i guess that's the best way this is right before we had kind of the industrial revolution and we um we kind of move into that so so it's still very like country
0: played,
1: and uh, yeah very
0: based and yes yeah
1: yes if you i mean if you look at art from the period, I mean, it's a lot of that. It's that romanticism, you know. You had the the idyllic countryside, you know. You had the manners, like so. You kind of had that. I would even say that we we're experiencing some of that today, where people are, at the cottage core community, for example. You know, people are starting to uh, fancy that a little bit more. You know, that idea of wait,
0: describe, say that again. The cottage what? Oh,
1: the the cottage core. So it is an aesthetic that is all over social media. You can search hashtag cottage for even on TikTok. And a lot of it consists of bloggers taking photos of them in long dresses or in the countryside and old houses, you know, with the candles, you know, making jam, making different cakes. So it's kind of that return to simplicity that, you know, writing letters. So really a lot of Dear me kind of came from that aesthetic. Uh, because i saw that a lot of people were kind of dreaming about that i think a lot because our world is so fast-paced and disconnected i think it kind of mirrors a deep-seated desire in a lot of people that we want connection we want um to be a little bit more in tune with our surroundings and so that's why i think it's i think it's fun uh and a lot of people have been reading like younger audiences have been reading jane austen and classic literature more than ever before and i think it kind of connects to that wand.
0: Uh, Uh, Hold on one second. Sure. So something you mentioned is about like returning to that simplicity and we're so confronted with like instant gratification and Mm -hmm. phones and social media that I've definitely I have two letters here that I wrote and I'm starting to write, I'm getting into Yay. letter writing.
1: I love that.
0: So I'm sending these out after uh, after our conversation. I'm gonna go for a little walk around the city, yeah. mail them out. You know, I feel like, I feel like yeah, I think people are, are kind of feeling that way because yeah. return to simplicity. I don't know about like lighting my house with candles yet though.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've reached that point. Uh, candles don't give off that much light. So I can't imagine how many candles would have been needed to light a party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess that's why they thought, <laughs> I guess that's one reason why people thought that um, at parties that they, each other were attractive because they couldn't see each other. It's just like the dim <laughs> pace. I look, look at that, look at that handsome man across the room. Can't yeah. see him. There's not enough candles.
0: <laughs> so you mentioned Jane Austen. Yeah. Is she a big influence on you?
1: I would say so when it comes to style, at least least, uh, with Dearest Josephine. Uh, Jane Austen isn't my favorite writer, but I think a lot of the tropes in her work uh, have defined a lot of literature views of romance, um, you know, that dream romance, Mr. Darcy, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think especially with researching Dear Josephine, I wanted to capture some of the tropes, some of the staples of that genre, of like the Regency love story, you know, when it comes to class, um, even some of the scandal elements, when it, you know, the the idea of the unwanted son being sent away, you know, some of those, those, those familiar plot points, I say, would come, would have come from Jane Austen, so with this book, I would say she was definitely an influence, because I believe a lot of readers base ideas, of, at least with young know, with women, base a lot of their ideas of, of love based off what Jane Austen has written.
0: Yeah, what I what I see on Bookstagram, it it looks like Jane Austen is like like the idol of.
1: <laughs> she really of is. Well, especially now that we have Bridgerton that's just come out on okay. Christmas Day, which has brought another Regency revival, and women have decided that. I mean I think years ago before all the pandemics have happened in Bath England which was one of the home places of Jane Austen they have a huge festival where everyone dresses up in regency garb and will promenade through the the town of Bath. So I think with Bridgerton coming out I mean whenever they finally restart that festival I think all these women are going to be flocking over there to wear their their regency that,
0: clothes. So, interesting. so what what is this this like Reignited appeal of her is it is it like this dream romance in a like a hyper quick world and
1: that's what I that's what I credit it to because growing up you know we would read Jane Austen in our like it'd be on the school reading list but it was kind of a begrudging you know we'd be forced to read it and write a paper Mm -hmm. on it for class and then you move on but now with social media all of a sudden she has been kind of come back into pop culture and become popular with younger audiences, which I find so interesting. I wrote an article for Frolic Media all about Jane Austen uh, in pop culture because I have been studying it, trying to figure out where's the root of it. Why all of a sudden do do 15-year-olds want to put on their uh, Regency dress and start speaking in an English accent? And, you know, like, I don't even know, like having tea parties. It's like all of a sudden this has become more of a thing, but I I really credit it to that want for connection, that want for simplicity, that romanticism. You know, we have app dating now, you know, I think we've stripped a lot of the romance out of culture. And so I think young girls are looking for it in other ways. And even if they haven't read Jane Austen, I think they've fallen in love with her ideas. So, I mean, we have Jane Austen, we have uh, the original books, which are, to be honest, are kind of hard to get through. But we have so many adaptions, uh, mm-hmm. we, have, we have so many films, you know, TV shows. And so I think people have fallen in love with the idea of her and her messages, uh, even more than her works. And so that's why Dear Show Scene was so fun to write because it was, it was really tapping into just that resurgence within culture. But- so, so,
0: so was there, there part of you when you were writing this? How, how, much, how much of it is, is like you versus like writing for an audience? But- like Ooh, I'm talking about like the, the dream man and dating and courtship and
1: <laughs> um I would say I think Elias in the book he was for me I kind of based him off what I had seen girls saying what they wanted so I really wanted okay. to create a parallel between the idea of the the dream regency boy that they read in classic literature versus you know maybe the real dream boy and their real in their life So I kind of created Elias based off that, you know, the Miss Rochester from Jane Eyre, like the broody lives in the manor, you know, writes his love letters. But then I think Oliver for me was the, okay, this is the the boy that you would go out with, you know, like with um, thinking about younger readers. I wanted to show the, what they're thinking they want versus what they actually might want. So when it comes to what's me, I think that's a hard question. you might have to edit so like, the silence. <laughs> you might have to trim so, the silence. <laughs> so like,
0: uh, so while I'm reading it,
1: yeah,
0: uh, Elias
1: mm-hmm. versus
0: Oliver. Oliver is like what you would see a regular teen now versus like a teen back in like 1821. And the difference in society and how we, how like men are, I had a lot of questions. I was thinking a lot about yeah. like like men and what does it mean to be a gentleman? And what does it mean yeah. today to be a gentleman? Uh, Cause I read Elias's letters yeah. and I'm like, this dude is desperate. This guy, <laughs> this guy right here. Oh man, sorry, dude, you would not cut it today. And like, it's interesting how society has changed. Yeah. Standards and I just want to get but, your ideas uh, I, on Actually,
1: that. I love that question. And when I was writing Elias, I mean, I knew, I was like, okay, he's going to have to be flowery, which isn't truly realistic. I mean, you, you're probably one of the few guys who have picked up this book and have read it, like, cover to cover. I mean, it, it's for women. But one thing with, uh, with writing for Elias, I wanted his struggle to really look at ideas of masculinity in Regency period uh and even to even to now you know because I have I've had a lot of guy friends who I've sat down with and I've asked them like as I'm you know what 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 do you struggle with I mean girls we have countless insecurities that are broadcasted all over the web you know (laughs) everyone knows what women deal with but I, I asked them I was like you know in this conversation what do you struggle with and a lot of them said that especially growing up in the south that they kind of struggled with this idea of masculinity like could they express their emotions you know how how, they didn't really know how to go about that without seeming not manly. And so when writing Dearest Josephine, I wanted that to be a focal point of Elias looking at the standards for men in the Regency period, you know, if he's going through grief, is he using writing letters as a way to kind of process that? So even though he's technically writing to a girl, I wanted it more of he was using his letters to really process what he was going through uh, in a safe space. I mean, I imagine his character that in person he would be rather stoic and a little broody, and he wouldn't be as emotional as he is on the page. But that's the beauty of the written word: how we speak yeah. isn't necessarily how we write. And so, when looking at the idea of gentleman, I mean, in the the Regency time, gentleman was all about your class, you know, your station. Are you a landowner? You know, how much money do you have? Uh, do you work out in the fields versus do you sit at a desk? You know, do you? those sort of things. And, but I think in a lot of ways we've connected that to the character of a person, at least in today's era, you know, era, if someone's like, ah, oh, he's a gentleman. I think there's more of a character connotation. So gentlemen in
0: the past used to be just like a station yes. sort of life. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, if,
1: so, I mean, if, for example, if you've ever seen any period film or you'd have two different types of men, you'd have the men walking around wearing work clothes and you'd have the ones walking around in their tailcoat and cravat and their Pantaloons mm-hmm. or something, and they'd be their trousers, and so it was that almost kind of like blue collar worker versus a desk, you know, a desk worker. So it's kind yeah. of that idea. Um, so gentleman in the past was really focused on station versus today. I think it more has more character connotations.
0: Yeah, I was I was very curious. I'm sure you looked into this, um, researching for the book, but like, it's really interesting how like class structure was
1: yeah.
0: back then and it seems like um or the way it's kind of portrayed in the book is that yeah. basically like your reputation was everything yeah. it wasn't really you made decisions based on what was best for your family and the social standing yes and the future um so that was, I mean, and yeah. being a bastard was like this, like,
1: oh, and even in the scandal.
0: Book,
1: well, especially being a, a illegitimate son, you know, in that time period, if you were illegitimate, but you were the son of a farmer, it wouldn't have impacted you probably as much as it okay. would have if you were the bastard of a, um, a titled gentleman. So in the book, Elias was able to keep his dad's title uh, in reality. He probably would have inherited the money, but wouldn't have been able to keep his father's title. So I, I stretched a little bit there just for the sake of fiction, but uh, back in that time period, especially like in the UK, really all across Europe, it was, I mean, status was everything. Reputation was everything because it it wasn't easy to rise in station. I mean, if you were born a maid, it's almost virtually impossible to end up the lady of a grand estate. So everything really revolved around your reputation in society, you know, where you well thought, how much money did you have, you know, what, what's your, your ancestry. I mean, you mm-hmm. could have a lot of money, but if you kind of, if you were quick money, for example, you, your father made a lot of money, but it wasn't old money. I mean, that was a kind of a different, uh, you know, you had different status there. Mm-hmm. So really the whole society revolved around who, like, who's, who's child you were and how much money you had.
0: And it's it's challenging to to take our contemporary view and put it back yeah. in that place and try to understand
1: yeah
0: why why it was like that um, yeah it was very uh, what would you say is that static where it's like very hard to. Move up. I would or down. say so. Yeah. Or it's I easy mean, to move down, I suppose, but not. I up. mean,
1: you kind of see, I think a lot of that kind of goes back to the idea of the feudal system. I mean, you yeah. have, but you'd still have, even in regency, you had lord and lady of an, of a, a state, you know, they'd be the lord and lady of like the village that they would do, you know, they would uh, rent out their fields and things like mm-hmm. that. So uh, it wasn't really until the industrial revolution where you started yeah. to see that system start to unravel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people who were once titled, you know, their title meant nothing anymore. Um, I think that kind of comes into even the, the early 1900s. You start to see that dissolve. So that's more. probably why
0: you you see, we talked about earlier about gentlemen, gentlemen referring to character now, where I'm yeah. sure the industrial revolution, now all of a sudden people who were lower in station had as much money as as yeah. this gentleman. So yeah. now they were like, well, he's not a gentleman. Is yeah. It's character is, is not yeah, the so, same as us or something. So
1: definition started, I think views and definitions started to change. And uh, I think then it started to become easier to rise and station or to uh, yeah. um, alter your place in the world. But in Regency, that was, I mean, that was a huge focal point, um, especially if you were middle to upper, upper class. I think that's what Jane Austen, a lot of her books, that's, that's a similar theme, you know, mm-hmm. usually it's not the highest you know the richest or the uh you know most highest up in society it's mm-hmm. a lot of her heroines tend to be right on the the line where they're mm-hmm. not they're not low class they're kind of upper middle class and trying to rise in station you know save their family from poverty and also back then women didn't have any power i mean they, they couldn't yeah. inherit their let's say you had the oldest daughter she couldn't inherit her father's property you know the, the a lot of times it would either it would go to either her husband or it would go to a the closest male family relative, and so mm-hmm. back then marriage was the number one thing That's all women were, were really could care about, is because their marriage determined mm-hmm. their future. Uh, so I think that that's another thing why that's another reason why status came from uh, money and title and all those things.
0: And so a lot of times too, they're marrying a man that they they aren't in love with and it's just for the family or whatever. So you're yeah. stuck in this position where you can't, you can't like make your own money or nope. inherit any money. You have to go with somebody else, but you, you probably don't love, or you, you might not love the yeah. man. You might be terrible. Yeah. He might be. Uh, and so there's like,
1: that's what the idea of you're doing it for your family is because yeah. you, how, how your merit marrying determines really your family's future. I mean, if you are one of the only daughters or, um, you you know, if you, if, if you have all sisters, then if your father died, uh, who would take care of your mom? Because the mom, you know, doesn't really have much money. So it's a lot of times the marrying determined really the course of the family. Uh, if the other sisters weren't married, they'd be reliant on their older sister to marry well so that the husband would take care of the other sisters. So, uh, that's where a lot of the idle time came from. Is if you were a high-born lady, and I guess if you weren't looking, I mean, if you weren't ready for marriage, I mean, I guess even once you were married, a lot of time, a lot of your time consisted of sitting in your drawing room.
0: <laughs> yeah. So what, what do what do women do in yeah. their idle time during this period? They,
1: you know, needlepoint, <laughs> work on their stitching, they paint, they played the pianoforte. So a lot of the arts, you know, they practice their French learn how to sketch and watercolor. And that's the idea of the accomplished lady. The accomplished Mm -hmm. lady uh, would have been someone who was fluent in the arts. And so it would have been a big deal. If you were proficient on the pianoforte, if you were a a talented artist, then Mm -hmm. that would have made you, I guess, revered more in society Uh, they would practice their singing, things like that, walk around, be very (laughs) ladylike. Really that was the idea of femininity um, in that time period, it kind of came from showing the weak, weakness of your sex, like as a woman. So uh, some of the women, wow. I, I read this little handbook that was from the regency period for women about, you know, how to attract a man. And one of, one of the advice- Yes, tell
0: me how to attract. Yeah,
1: they attract said, the okay, to, to faint, to show that, you know, that you are weak, to faint near him. That was one of the things, you know, you throw your handkerchief down, which shows that you're interested- uh, things like that things of, of that nature of, of course you know you'd you'd sing you'd invite him you know you'd ha- you'd hope he'd come and call on you things like that but my favorite was definitely just to faint in front of him to show that <laughs> you're delicate you have delicate nature just to faint
0: wow.
1: <laughs> so, so just imagine that it- like going down today so the girls you know they walk with <laughs> a guy and just pass out in front of him
0: <laughs> well what's interesting though now too is like guys were it feels like it was a lot more structured the courtship it was like today i feel like like if a woman tries to flirt or send signals but young men were often very clueless and we don't we don't get it yeah then there's like this total like miscommunication and it's 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 tough out here
1: there's i mean then it was everything had to be shop around that was a huge deal because a a woman's honor, I mean, the men could be sleeping around, no problem, but Mm -hmm. as a woman, you didn't want to have your honor questioned. Like you never wanted someone in society to say that, you know, you've been sleeping around or things like that. So chaperones were a must to preserve the honor, I guess, of the relationship. And so women were very much censored. So a lot of the interactions between men and women happened at the parties uh, if you lived in the city, there would be a social season where you'd go to the different assembly halls, you'd go on your daily promenade through the park. And it was a very structured way of meeting people. If a man was interested in a woman, he could call on her, like in her in, with her family. So he could call on her for afternoon tea, sit with the family in the drawing room. So it was um, very structured just overall. And, and that's how you'd meet people. Uh, So I, so I I would say that it definitely um, a lot more rigid, I guess, than, than now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The, um, the parties in the book. So this is, is this, is this something that I'm sure throughout history, people of upper classes, they threw these extravaganzas, even if like they didn't necessarily have the means, but it's to show that you were, were this or that. And um, actually, I remember learning about like Louis XIV, and he basically made, like, luxury into power, where in order to sit on his court or to, like, come to his parties, you had to get, like, this type of dress made by Louis XIV's tailor, so you'd be paying the state to come to the state's party, and it was just, like, a brilliant way to have power. Wow, I didn't know
1: that. That's super interesting.
0: Yeah, he, he was a smart dude, but that's a common thing, right? To throw these parties and then to set up these these courting experiences and like, hey, yeah. you should talk to lady blah, blah, blah over there, her daughter. And the, is, and the
1: thing um, is at, at parties, uh, that thing is pretty humorous. You couldn't just go up and introduce yourself. You had to have a common acquaintance to introduce you. So if you just walked into a party and knew absolutely mm-hmm. no one, you couldn't talk to anyone without it being considered rude. Uh, which I think is hilarious. So, I mean, you would you would need to go with someone to a party who had connections, who could introduce you uh, because just talking to someone was considered rude, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty funny. But in that time period, it seemed to be very sensory. The idea of opulence and luxury was very experience-based. Uh, so, for example, in, I think, London, there was, there was the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens and it was a public place where... People could go and pay and there'd be fireworks. They'd have vendors, you know, lots of dancing, lots of music. It'd be a very opulent place to be. And I mean, that was just something that people did. Like people put a lot of emphasis on the idea of experience and of luxury. And so I think a lot of parties reflect that as well. I mean, you'd, it's kind of peacocking. People wanted to show their yeah. wealth. They wanted to entertain because that secures place in society.
0: Yeah, and reputation, if you, if, right?
1: Yeah, because let's say you wanted to secure a dinner invitation at the Duke's house you know, if if you threw this big party and invited the family, you know, perhaps that would help you make the right connections to rise in society. Because there again, your station was everything. So it all kind of connects there.
0: So it was like, to move up, it wasn't based on your actual like merits or talents. It was like navigating social interactions.
1: Really? I mean, I would say so you would need some kind of status, you would need some kind of money, some connections to at least get your foot in the door. But you wanted people to like having you around. I mean, at least in some of my research there, uh, especially in older uh, pieces of literature, they'd be the character who would come from decent family, but would, you know, who would be a gentleman, wouldn't need to really work for a living Mm -hmm. and would travel around with people of higher title because they liked having him around and that's how he earned his status. So I think, throwing parties if you showed that you were good company if people then i think that would help you secure invitations to dinner parties so the idea of being well thought really came into came into play uh i think it'd be fun to live in in regency time for about two weeks and then i i think i'd probably get fed up with it (laughs)
0: well that that reminds me of so i have a number of musician friends here in the city yeah and they all go on tour and everything and they say that uh, in order to be successful in the music scene, mm-hmm. uh, you need two of three things. One is talent. Mm-hmm. Two is professionalness and three is to be a good hang. So
1: mm-hmm. you need at least yeah.
0: two of those to make it, uh, as a musician professionally, Yeah. because you could, you could be like totally fun and have a ton of talent and be like, not that's really so professional and yeah. show up all the time, but like, eh, he's a fun guy. He's good. Like, let's keep him around. But if you have all three, that's how you like kill it.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think that that applies to pretty much anything, though. I mean, you have to have. something. so great of about
0: it, though, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's
1: true. I mean, you have to have some kind of some kind of skill, some something. But even with writing, I think that that's so true. I mean, I I by no means think that I'm a, a great writer. But I think it's like tenacity always beats talent. I mean, if, if you're good with people, you know, if you learn the industry, if you're willing to grow, I think that that leads to a lot more success than just talent. Mm-hmm. I've, I've met some writers at conferences who are incredible writers, but who have zero people skills,
0: mm. don't
1: are, aren't nice. And I mean, publishing is such a people-based business. So I'm like, if you're not really good with people, it's gonna be very challenging. I mean, I think a lot of people think writers just sit in their house all day on their laptop, which is kind of (laughs) true, but I mean, it's kind of true, but a lot of business comes down to, can you work well with a team? I mean, I changed so much in Dearest Josephine uh, when working with my editorial team and working with my marketing team. And so, I mean, so it was a very collaborative project. And now I spend hours every day communicating with people online. And so having some kind of people skill I think really helps you get further than if you just had the talent. So I think that that's so true. And it definitely does apply to Regency. I mean, if you were fun to have around, then
0: (laughs) you'd probably
1: get to go to all all the parties.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you said you you wouldn't want to live there. Uh, You'd get pretty bored. I can see that. I'd probably
1: get sick and die. I mean... (laughs) Well, yeah. well, I medicine. had to look up. So
0: at one point, two points, two points in the book, um, you mentioned uh, death by consumption. And I was like, yeah. what? what
1: is what is that?
0: So I looked it up and it's tuberculosis. Yeah. I, and the win- I and winter
1: fever is pretty much pneumonia, but they didn't know how to treat it. So <laughs> you take it, take you out or they would just put leeches on you or something or drain your blood or do something weird like that. <laughs> Yeah,
0: and like, uh, so Elias, he's in this this manor. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that in the winter, it wasn't very warm inside.
1: Oh, it's, and, you know, oh, Have you been to the UK? I have not. It's I want to go. It's a very wet place. And so in the 1800s, without modern architecture and, and central heating, uh, I can't imagine how damp uh these houses would have been you know the mold and the mildew yeah. within these houses uh trying to keep the fire going yeah. and i mean especially it gets cold up in northern england and so getting sick it's pretty easy to do uh yeah. i mean and even with with having the rats and things like that you know there were a lot of things that weren't so sanitary and I, yeah, people got sick and they died <laughs> that was like a thing
0: yeah <laughs> We're very fortunate to uh, to be living this time. I do think it's interesting how, like, I'm sure the 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 norms during the Regency period weren't that similar, or, or were very similar to norms hundreds and maybe a thousand years prior to that. And this over this two hundred year span, how like the mm. culture and, and everything has changed so dramatically.
1: Oh, I I definitely think that's true. Even over the last 50 to 100 years, I mean, our culture has, has, uh, I mean, just rocketed to a totally different place. Uh, I think a lot of that is credited to advancements in technology. We have advanced Mm -hmm. so much technologically, there we go, over the last few hundred years to where the advancements a uh, century ago moved a lot slower and so i think that that's one of the reasons why so much has changed in such a short period of time yeah
0: yeah the industrial yeah <laughs> revolution um have you have you been to the uk
1: i have i've been a few times
0: what's what's your experience like over there
1: like just, just overall um well I, yeah and I, the food the to food fight.
0: too cuz in the throughout the book you mentioned yeah. all these different kinds of foods that i've never had before i just think they they probably <laughs> yeah. taste like really bad i don't know
1: well i actually really liked uk food but i think some people might say it's a little bland uh, i personally enjoyed it but a lot of culture i think stems from food and that's why i included a lot of uh, food in dearest josephine is because i think a lot of culture the idea of just a so- social uh it's just social aspects kind of surrounded yeah. food i mean the idea of afternoon tea you know, it's social, the idea of the dinner party, social, you know, what was served uh, at big gatherings. So that's why I like to include a lot of that is because I think it reflects the, just the culture as a whole. Um, I would say my experience in the UK where I enjoyed it, I love it. I think it's a beautiful place. I prefer the countryside over the city. I think the history of of England is so interesting. Uh, And i'll tell one quick story i was over in ireland years ago and i was with a tour group and the bus stopped so we could look out look at this view and so i got off the bus and i was walking around and i saw this old tower hidden kind of in this brush that had grown over it and i asked the bus driver and said oh that's just ruins of an old castle they're all <gasps> over the place like for real i mean i went into this ruins and walked up a spiral staircase in this old wow. stone tower I had just been overgrown, you know, it wasn't a historical site, but I saw that consistently all across the UK, people just lived in, the, it's almost like layered history, I mean here yeah. in America, we don't see evidence of our history everywhere, but in the UK, I mean you'd have something from the 1400s. It something from the 1600s, the 1800s, and then to present, it's all been layered and people are living in it. And I think that the culture is so strong because of that. And like the, the sense of yeah. national identity. And so that's one thing I really loved about it. Uh, I love the, the the Moors in England. So the Moors and, are the hills, right? Yeah, so it's like okay. a heathland. So not not a lot grow uh, up, up in okay. the Moors. I mean, most of the time it's grazing. Raising land okay. uh but that's like that's in Northumberland, which is the northern part of england usually right around the border of scotland but uh yeah i've been to england a few times i've, I've been throughout europe a few times um, i wish i want to go back once the borders <laughs> open yeah. uh Dearest josephine actually releases in the uk i'm pretty sure in march so i'd love to go over and see it.
0: oh that'd be awesome
1: but we'll see how that goes
0: so i want to so i I wrote down some of these lines in the book that I enjoyed, especially. I think it's interesting how like as, as a writer, you can really like like in a sentence just write something and be like, Yeah, that was that was cool. <laughs> I, I wrote that. Yeah. And and I at least that's what I like doing when yeah. I write. Um, and so there are a number of these that I just really appreciated, the the writing. Um my existence seemed dreary until I let the light in. That's a good one.
1: Thank you.
0: You wrote that's it. So, fun, so fun you're talk. very intentional with this, right?
1: Oh, very intentional. I think that's little quotey things. Yeah. One of my, like the prose is one of my favorite parts of writing. Granted, not yeah. every sentence can be poetic because I'm, can, writing, yeah. I'm, I'm writing commercial fiction. And so in, I haven't moved over into literary, so I want it to be very accessible, like everything I write, but I love those little quippy, you know, prose so lines. So what's the difference
0: between like literary writing versus commercial writing?
1: Oh, I think it's, uh, it's one of those things, I've, I've gone to so many for writing conferences and have asked this question. It's one of those things that you know it when you see it, but okay. I mean, when, when it comes to literary writing, uh, it's more drawn out emphasis on vocabulary, uh, it's a little more complex, I would say. Okay. When it comes to commercial, a lot of the sentences are more short, more concise, uh, uses a little bit more um, accessible language. Uh, the storytelling seems oh, to be a faster pace. Uh, it's, but yeah, it's kind of those things that you'll know it when you see it. And it's a, it's a tone that when you read a book, you, you'll be able to detect you know, determine if something's more literary or if it's geared toward a more general audience. But one of my okay. favorite things to do when it comes to writing little quotes, I go to my local Starbucks and I just sit at a table with a notepad and a pen. Even after I've been working on my laptop all day, put on some music and I just think about things and I oh, yeah, just I just work and write down statement, like write down things. And a lot of those quotes and ramblings end up in my books. I had a few little things that I wrote. And I contacted my line ed- editor when we were finishing up Dear Josephine. And I asked her, I was like, can I please just weasel this one in? Can I just weasel yeah. this one in? And so that's one of my favorite things to do. I'm, the project I'm working on now, I haven't had the chance to really do that. So okay. I've already kind of made my editor promise me that she would give me some, t- a t- a, some time to come up with my little sayings. It's because- good. It's like
0: you're like, I mean, I mean, the book overall is your thoughts about the world, but these individual lines really can express it's a seasoning. what you think. It's,
1: it's yeah. like the seasoning. Like you create your dish, but then these little sprinkles of literature, I guess, um, uh, in the book.
0: Here are a couple other ones. Yeah. The city taught me an important lesson that we are never without options. That one very resonated with me. <laughs> uh, good or bad uh with with christmas eve came flurries and opulence i thought that was a great line um being alone with her was dangerous but anything else seemed impossible that's a good
1: one. Oh, i got to get so mushy in this book one day i'm gonna roll my eyes at this and be like well, what did i just <laughs> what is this sappy nonsense
0: never underestimate the artistry of human thought i like that there's a number in here. There's like three pages I wrote down of this. It's, it's good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> before we take off here, Sure. Explain more your writing process. How, yeah. how like you specifically go about writing a book and then um, what's on the horizon for you next?
1: Yeah. Well, nowadays I have to be able to write a book with a very short deadline. Uh, with my publishers, around three months, I need to get a first draft to them. And the books that they have signed with me are between 80 and 90,000 words. So I have about three months to pump out a novel. Uh, So for that reason, I've had to kind of change how I would usually write a book. I'm a hardcore plotter now. When I used to write for myself, I kind of just pants my way through things or with a very light outline. But now my outlines tend to be around 35 pages. So they're extremely Mm. long. But before I really start working on a, a project, I'm very much about the message. I am a firm believer that if someone picks up my book, I need to say something that matters. I need to say something worthwhile. Uh, because yes, there, there it is. There she is. But if someone picks my book, it's a direct link between me, you know, and that person. Like I have an hour, they've given me a few hours of their time for, for me to speak into their life. And so I want to say something that matters. So I usually start with a message or at least a concept of what I really want to talk about. So that's
0: what you start with.
1: Yeah. So I start with the message. So okay. dear Josephine, I knew I wanted to really look at fantasies of romance versus reality and um, the connection we can have with words. And so that was kind of the base theme that I, re- or the base message that I wanted to go off of. And from there, it was really, then, then the concept came. So it comes with like the message, and I started to develop a general concept. And then I outline chapter by chapter. I do in depth character sketches. So by the time I'm done with my outline, it's a meaty piece of work. But I wow. really try to have a handle on what I'm writing before I get started because I know that, with such short time, uh, like just with deadlines, that I need to be able to move swiftly and precisely. So, so. do you
0: like, like you have the message and then the plot but you do like all the research and everything before you write it
1: a lot of times or at least some at least some of the general research i mean when i'm working on a chapter if i need to know i mean for example with dear says feet a lot of my google searches were diagram of a carriage or names of garments that people wore in regency or what time do they have their afternoon tea you know like little things like that so you know when i was working on that chapter i might do some of that research but when it comes to the broad Research, I did that beforehand. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even if, even if, even when there is such a tight outline, uh, there's always going to be a revision. And that's what I'm working on now, too. I mean, with Dear Josephine, I think the outline was super tight. But once my editor looked at it, we changed several things in the book just to make it more market friendly. Uh, okay. So yeah, that's kind of my process, though. I, I'm a hardcore outliner. Uh, I'm a very visual writer. So I do Pinterest. I do, I have Spotify that has like a playlist wow. for it. Uh, I do all the little, all the things I love doing research trips if able, just because yeah. I like to insert some of my own experiences into my work. I think it's so important as an artist in general, Um, you know, whether an artist is a writer or a painter or a musician to find a common ground with what they're creating. And so in every single book that I write, I've kind of found that to be a tried and true method, even if the book isn't, you know, something I relate with completely, being able to find or be able to put little sprinkles of myself or whatever into the writing helps me to find that common ground with the work. So I try to do that as well whenever I'm working, even if that's, for example, uh, Mrs. Capers in Dear Josephine is the name of your my, English teacher. My English teacher, yeah. who I'm still best friends with, uh, she taught me all about middle and high school and. She's still one of my closest friends. I think I'm, I am I told her I would put her in every single one of my books. So she's gonna be my where, where's Waldo. Like in every one of my books, they'll be able to, people will be able to look. Do you have in a Mrs. few, uh,
0: when you write, do you have like a few th- things like that where you slip in?
1: Like little Easter eggs. I think Mrs. Yeah. Papers is the biggest one. Okay. Uh, but so she's gonna be one that's gonna keep going. I'd love to in every book I write hint at other work somehow, even if it's a name or a reference that only yeah. certain people would understand but uh she's the biggest i think i've i think i've referenced other teachers in my work before
0: okay.
1: people in my life i kind of slide them in there <laughs> one so day what, someone's gonna read my book and be like wait did you put me in this
0: <laughs> it'll be a nice nice little thing uh, uh what, what what's your spotify look like when you wrote this
1: oh it's a really long playlist i have a playlist called dearest josephine and it's a mix of a lot of instrumental scores um okay you know some some I mean, really, it's a, it's a hot mess of music, but I have a Dear Josephine playlist, but then I also have character playlists. So I have one for Elias that I listened to when I was working on his letters. Oh, it's, it's, so it's very thematic, and a lot of it is the, the soundtrack from The King that came out a few years ago. So it's
0: with uh, a lot Timothy and Chalamet, yeah. right?
1: So a lot of uh, violin sounds a little morose to it. And then with Josie, Hertz is more of a contemporary. Feel still with that little bit of um, a that, that instrumental, um, music flair. So yeah, lots lots of different music.
0: <laughs> so your upcoming book, did you yeah. create? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, and then what your Spotify playlist will look for that will look like sure. for that?
1: So I my next book is called The Summer We Forgot. It releases in November from Thomas Nelson Harper Collins. I'm still working on it. I have seen the cover for it, and the cover is amazing. I think my jaw hit the hit the floor when I saw it. So a huge fan, but my editor and I are pitching it as if Taylor Swift narrated a murder drama. So it's very (laughs) nostalgic. Yeah. (laughs) So it's very nostalgic. I really wanted to kind of tap into uh, kind of the fear factor of memories and the question, are we more of what we remember or what we forget? I think Mm. You know, we all, we're all living in a coming of age story, but I think that there's something kind of unsettling about childhood memories, even if they're good. I was hanging out with my sisters weeks ago. We were all swapping things that we remembered about, you know, growing up, middle school, high school, people we knew, things we regretted. And even though a lot of the memories we talked about were good, we all left feeling a little uneasy. Like we we were all like, why do we feel so weird (laughs) about talking about this? Like, why was this weird? And I think that there, that that's the. there's something about memories that I find so interesting. And so the story is about a group of of teenagers who were once friends, but they've since kind of drifted apart. Uh, It takes place during the summer and Mm -hmm. their former science teacher turns up dead in the summer camp where they were gonna be camp counselors. So when this happens, they all realize that they Mm -hmm. forgot the whole summer from two years ago. And so the whole book is, they're trying to solve this murder But more than that, it's they're trying, they're wrestling with identity, you know, their views of themselves, you know, could we have done this? you you know, uh, the idea of uh, the victim might like, are are we victims, you know, because someone's done this to us or, you know, are we, are we criminals? Like, so it kind of wrestles with these different things. So it's been super fun. My playlist for it probably has a lot of, uh, has a lot of alternative rock and some like some, I guess, an angsty emotional music yeah. but it's been fun because i have thought I, I grew up going to summer camp and so i've been able to bring in a lot of like my summer camp experiences uh it takes place on 30a which is a strip of highway a scenic highway in florida which is a huge destination, like tourist destination okay. spot so i grew up going there so i was able we bring in some of that i went on a school marine tr- um, marine camp when i was in fifth grade with a teacher and so i I just have brought in a lot of different things from my own experience. I mean, I'm gonna dedicate the book to my sister Sheely, but also to everyone who knew me in high school. So, just kind of, so I've like been thinking so much about um, just coming of age and what that looks like. Yeah. So really excited about that book. It's very different from Dears Josephine, but I love that my publishing team has been uh, so supportive of me trying, trying new things.
0: That's awesome. We'll be excited for its Thank release. You. And uh, where can people pick up Dearest Josephine?
1: Dearest Josephine is available at almost all bookstores. So any retailers you can find, Dearest Josephine, I mean, it's on everything from Amazon, Books Million, your, probably your local bookstore. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be everywhere. It, it releases in Australia in June. I'm pretty sure it releases nice. in the UK in March, or, which I'm really excited about. Uh, it just got into a book box over in India. So yeah, it's in, it's, awesome. it's in the Netherlands. So it's all over the place. You can find yeah. it.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, uh, I appreciate your work. I'm a big fan. <laughs> and uh, thanks for stopping by today. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rich. And "Homeless But Human" is still one of my favorite nonfiction books, and I recommend it to a lot of people. So,
0: oh, that's plug, awesome! Thank pl- you. Plug
1: there too. You're welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Caroline at author Caroline George. You can also find her book, Dears Josephine, where books are sold. Have a delightful day.